The series is called Undercover Boss. Undercover Boss. How many of you have ever seen an episode of Undercover Boss? Let me see your hands. All right, so quite a few of you have watched that at least once. I, I watch it occasionally, especially if the boss is somebody from a corporation or a company that I'm aware of. I'm not as much of a fan when I don't know who the corporation is. But when, you know, I frequent the restaurant or the store or I've been or I'm associated with, I know who, you know, then I, it kind of intrigues me as to what they're going to do, what they're going to find out. Now, it's been renewed for the 11th season by CBS, just got renewed again. So it must do rather well in the ratings and uh, it, it has a pretty consistent audience and they're already running reruns of it on other stations. Uh, but it, the premise of the show is that the boss, the CEO, the owner, uh, the, the corporate executive, he disguises himself. That's the first thing, all right? He puts on a, a fairly elaborate disguise. Sometimes, in fact, I think they go a little too far in the disguise because it seems to me that if a person walked in looking like that, you'd be like, nah, I don't really know if that's the way they look all the time or not. But they disguise themselves so that, of course, nobody knows they're the boss, okay? And, uh, and, and they, they go in and they work at kind of some odd jobs around the corporation, the, the restaurant, the plant, whatever it might be, and, and, and they do various tasks. And then at the end, they take off the disguise, they reveal themselves as, you know, hey, I am the boss, I am the owner of, I'm the CEO of, and uh, these people are like, oh, oh my gosh, uh, just taken aback, you know, and aghast that they have been working with the boss. And, you know, what did they say? Well, they're reminded of, of what they said, and they're reminded of what they've done, uh, because, of course, it's, it's all documented and on tape and everything like that. But a lot of times, of course, at the end, the, the boss, you know, is very uh, gracious and, and, and gives to them uh, something, you know, and, and he's, they've shared some kind of a story with him that, uh, or her that they understand that, you know, it has a need and the boss comes through at the end. But sometimes, sometimes, there have been those shows where the person winds up being let go or the person gets kind of called into for some extra training because this is not the way we want our business to operate. We don't want you to be the face of the company because you're not doing things correctly. So it's, it's a pretty unique show and, and, uh, and, and for the next few weeks, we're going to use this theme. And, and the reason we're going to use this theme is because I think it's a good definition sometimes of, of, of you and me, our lives. We have, we have some things in our life that if we're not careful, they can become the boss of us. And, and they're kind of undercover, they're kind of under the surface. Sometimes they're disguised. We don't see them as they truly are. And it's almost as if we don't see it until it's too late. And all of a sudden, what is in us comes out of us. Now, it's interesting that CBS has an agreement with all of these companies that they will not show the corporation, the company, the CEO, or whatever, in a bad light, okay? So, so they've, they've made an agreement that, hey, you know, I mean, if somebody really comes across, we're not going to 
take advantage of the situation, and we're not trying to give you a bad name. We're not trying to, to, to make things bad for the company or the corporation. There's an agreement with that. Here's the problem. That does not align with our lives. Sometimes the undercover boss in our lives comes out and it becomes the boss of us, but there's no guarantee that when that happens, it's not going to harm or hurt you or the people that you love. There is no agreement. It's not like the TV show. So while sometimes our undercover boss can come across as disguised, a lot of times when it comes out, mm, it's hurtful to ourselves and to those around us. So what we're going to talk about is how we can make sure that the things that are inside us, what fills us on the inside, and often that is our emotion, how can we make sure that doesn't become the boss of us? How can we make sure, and, and a lot of times, isn't it true that sometimes you can't see that about yourself, I can't see that about myself, but other people can. It's often very, uh, it doesn't happen a lot, but, but when it does on the show, sometimes somebody will recognize who the person is. You look a lot like and at some point, they'll actually have to have a little meeting and say, okay, look, don't give me away. But yes, I am. I am the boss. I'm the owner. I'm the CEO. Sometimes we can't see it. But other people can. And we don't realize that the emotions that are in us have become the boss of us. And while a TV program may promise that they're not going to hurt the name or the brand, we can't make the same promise to ourselves or other people. So, it is important for us to get a handle on things like anger and greed and unforgiveness and lust and guilt and fear. Because otherwise... Forget the TV show, scripture says these things can become the boss of you. These things can all of a sudden become who you are and take over. So how do we recognize that? And how do we make sure we're not giving it control over us? Are, are there some things that trigger that? And how can we control it? So, here's, here's what we know as it relates to most people. Here's what we know. We all like being the boss. We like being the boss. Now, I realize that, that most people, they, they have a boss, okay? But still, there are certain things that you control, and you like that. And in fact, the more control that you have the better off you feel you are. And, and we like to be able to call the shots. Truth is, if we don't like working for the man anymore, we, we could quit. We can go find another position, another person.
person to work for. We like to be able to call the shots. We like our freedom. We like our choices. We like being in control. We like being in control. We like to think that we can do what we want, when we want, wherever we want, and we long for the day when we can pay for whatever we want. And the more of that we get, the more of that that becomes a part of our life, the more successful, the more happy we believe we will be. And in fact, I mean, are, are there not news-related articles, news-related stories that come on TV of a person who seemingly had it all and then seemingly threw it all away. And you look at them and you're like, if I was them, if I was in that position, if I had what they had, I would never have made those choices. I would never have made that selection. I would never have thrown it all away so easily. We're shocked when that happens. And we firmly believe we would have made better choices. But here's the deal. No one gets in trouble. No one gets in trouble because they refuse advice. We get in trouble because the advice we listen to most often is our own. Let me say that to you again. We don't get in trouble because people refuse advice. People get in trouble because the advice they listen to more than anyone else's is their own advice. And that advice is strained through the emotions that are part of the inside of our lives. And when that gets filtered through our emotions, it gives us a pretty skewed view of reality. And so people don't even see the consequence of their actions because their choices are being filtered through the emotions that are on the inside. And while the outside may look like it's got it all going on and has it together, the inside is a mess and the inside is what is the boss. And it takes over. How do we say no to what lies beneath? How do we say no to what is on the inside that can so easily become the boss of us? So in the weeks to come, we're going to break apart some of these emotions, some of these characteristics, some of these traits that can so easily become the boss of us and we don't even see it. Sometimes other people recognize it before we do, but it doesn't matter because the advice we're taking is our own and that advice is strained through our emotions and it gives us a pretty skewed view of reality and all of a sudden what's in us comes out of us and it's the boss and we're a mess. So for undercover boss for the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to break these apart. But today, as we get started, I want us to look at what Jesus actually says about this. Because there is a passage of scripture where he deals with what lies beneath 
and what is on the inside. And he talks about it. And he talks about it, first of all, to a crowd of people, but then he gets a little more in-depth with his disciples. And so I want us to take a look at it today. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. Say that together. Ready? Matthew 15. That's where I want everybody to go. You can look it up on your phone. You can look it up on your iPad. Some of you brought scripture with you. I'd encourage you to go there because I want you to see what Jesus has to say in regards to what is on the inside being more important at times than what is on the outside. Here's where we start. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, right at the beginning. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. It seems like so many chapters in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, start with, and the Pharisees came, and then the Pharisees, and there were some Pharisees in the back, and a Pharisee came and asked a question. They are intrigued by Jesus, but at the same time, there's just something about him that rubs them the wrong way, and they are trying to trip him up. And so oftentimes, the reason they come is because they are trying to ask him a question he can't answer, get him to say something that goes against the law that they can accuse him of. That's what's happening here. Some of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, come to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, they came all the way from Jerusalem to ask this, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You ready for this? They don't wash their hands. Tell me that doesn't fit for the past year and a half, right? We're supposed to wash your hands more. They don't wash their hands for 20 seconds. They are not singing happy birthday with soap and water. Here's the deal. They're not washing their hands before they eat, okay? And, and from a ceremonial standpoint, from a traditional standpoint, Jewish people are to wash their hands before they eat. Otherwise, they are considered unclean. Now, the Old Testament law was given to point people and prepare people for for what? You're an intelligent crowd. What was the Old Testament law given? It was supposed to point them towards... Go ahead, spit it out. Yeah, exactly. Jesus, a Savior, Messiah. It was to point them to God. It was to prepare them for a Messiah that was coming. That was the intention of the law. But then there are these other rules that are added by the elders, and they're only known, to be honest, by some of the religious hierarchy. And they were not created at all to help move people towards God. In fact, in another portion of Scripture, which is just a totally different message, we're not going to go into it, but in another portion of Scripture, Jesus says, you've actually burdened the people. You are placing a burden on God's people, and you are not lifting a finger to help them carry it. And sometimes the rules and the regulations, I mean, isn't it possible for church people 
right? I mean, if we've kind of grown up in the church, we, we even have our own language, churchese. And, and, and we, we kind of speak this, this language. And for people who have never been to church or for people who haven't been to church in years, it's just a totally different thing to them. They don't understand it. They don't. And what are we to be doing? We're supposed to be pointing people to Jesus. Pointing people to a Savior. Pointing people to one who can lift the burden that they carry. And sometimes they feel like, you know what? I got to obey these rules. I got to get these rituals down. I got to follow these traditions. And then maybe I'll fit into the club. And then I'll get to Jesus. No, we got it all messed up. And that's the way it was back in Jesus' day. Old Testament law was to push people towards Jesus, but these new rules and regulations, sometimes only known by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were weighing people down, was not helping move them towards God. Jesus knew that, and so he wasn't going to let them get away with it. The rules were initiated to keep Jewish people from eating what they were not supposed to. So what they were talking about here is the fact that the disciples didn't always wash their hands before they ate, and evidently there were some Pharisees who were on the wash the hands committee, and they saw this, and so now they go and call Jesus out on it. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus is going to turn the tables on them. He points out that they are using tradition and rules to actually thwart God's law about honoring their parents. And, and, and they have created some rules and regulations to kind of, kind of skirt that one. We, we don't need to abide. And he knows that. He says, look, you're the ones that have added this tradition, this ritual, and, and what you're actually doing, you're thwarting the command of God, the law of God that was given, that was given to Moses, that was written down on that stone tablet. They're nullifying the word of God for their own rules and traditions. So he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. What's going on? They have turned religion into a game that they can always win. They can always win. But the way that they win, listen now, the way that they win is not necessarily by elevating themselves. The way that they win is by pushing others down. So they come and they accuse the disciples. Well, we're better than your guys because we wash our hands before we eat. Now, please don't read into this, okay? Is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Yes, 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 yes. By all means, yes. But do you see what they're doing? They're, they're just kind of looking for that, what's the wedge? What's the nitpick? And, and they elevate themselves by pushing others down. 
we got to make sure that that is not what we are doing. Remember Ephesians 4 says that actually let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is for the building up of others. That is not how the Pharisees looked at life. We need to be people, especially those of us that are Christ followers, that are his disciples, people that lift other people up. Lift other people up. And we don't lift ourselves up by pushing them down. That's what the Pharisees did. You hypocrites, he says. I mean, Jesus just calls them out, you know. Then Jesus called the crowd to him. So evidently, for a moment, he's talking to the Pharisees, but then he kind of says, hey, uh, you in the back, come, come on in just a little bit, listen to this. Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And then it's as if he just kind of drops the mic and walks away. And just kind of leaves the Pharisees, which he did so often, you would think they would have learned their lesson. There was never a time where they came at him with something, where they came to him with a question, where they were trying to trip him up, where he didn't reverse the whole thing around, where he didn't turn the tables, where he didn't trip them up. He always had the right response. He always had the proper response. And usually, he was able to turn it completely around on them. You would have thought at some point they would figure that out. This time, Jesus calls in the crowd to say, hey, these guys might be telling you one thing, but you need to know something completely different. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of their mouth. That is what defiles them. And they walk away. Okay, so now, a few minutes down the road, right? Jesus is just with his disciples. Verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Um, Jesus. I don't know if you picked up on this, but I think these guys were a little ticked off when you said what you said, and especially when you like called the crowd in to kind of call them out, and then you just turned and walked away. Do you know that you offended them? Because still, I mean, the disciples they're still kind of feeling their way through this too. Remember, Jesus so oftentimes had to re-explain something that he had already explained. When he gets down to that last week of his ministry with them, he goes back and explains everything all over to them. Even when they're on that mountaintop experience where Jesus is ready to kind of ascend back into heaven and they have seen him alive and they have eaten with him, Matthew even says, at that point, some of them still had questions. So they have grown up, right? They've grown up in a world where you don't offend these guys. And, and they're like, Jesus, um, I think some of them were a little bit offended. 
Jesus basically says, don't worry about them. And don't worry about that. Leave them, he says. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Leave them. Don't follow them. They are blind guides. And if, if you follow, you'll fall into the pit with them. So, Jesus just kind of cuts off that conversation, but the disciples are still not, they still aren't quite understanding, where's he going with this? They need some explanation, they still need some help, so they choose Peter, okay? So Peter goes in verse 15 and he says, explain the parable to us. And in verse 16, Jesus says, are you still so dull? Come on, guys. You got to start getting this. Verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then What's he talking about here? Don't answer, because I know you'd be embarrassed. Right? I mean, first of all, a couple weeks ago, we're talking about Jesus, who was a professional spitter, because he used that a couple times to heal people, right? Now, we got Jesus talking about going to the bathroom. What in the world? What is going on? So he says... Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? And they're like, yeah. We see that, you know, a couple times a day. Peter, even more than that. Uh, you know, I mean, they're just like, I can't believe we're talking with you about this. <clears throat> you know, I think I've shared this story before, but... There was a time when I was working, we lived next door to my grandma, my grandma Pearl, and uh, uh, she's just a great lady, we loved her to death, and, but very, you know, prim and proper, and, and, and I was working on a light, and I had the screw in my mouth, it was just a small screw, you know, and I was working to change the light and that kind of thing, and I accidentally swallowed the screw. And my grandmother's in the room. And, and I'm just kind of stunned. You know, for a moment I'm like, oh, okay, I think we've got an issue here. I can't believe I just did that. And then my grandma's like, well, you'll just have to look for it. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I really don't want to have this conversation with my grandmother. You know, it just gives new meaning to the term you have a screw loose. But anyways... Um, that's kind of the way the disciples must feel as Jesus talks to them about going to the bathroom, right? I mean, isn't it interesting the day and age in which we live? I mean, 
you hear more now, I, 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 I think you hear more now on TV and radio about going to the bathroom in commercials. There are songs about it, you know. There's a family, I think they have a family like the Three Bears who talk about their going to the bathroom experience. And now, uh, aren't there, they're, they're like, they write songs about toilet paper. Uh, there's a rap about it, I think, that they've come up with. Um, and and they, they, they try to, I don't know if they just try to make it more of a pleasant experience. Um, that one, you know, when you have heartburn, nausea, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. <laughs> I mean, the first time I heard that, I'm like, did they just like put vibrato on diarrhea? I, I just can't believe that they were trying to, you know, kind of just, let's make that a catchy jingle that everyone will sing. <clears throat> How weird. I would think the disciples probably thought a little bit of that. It's like, is he really talking to us about this? Don't you know that whatever you eat, good, bad, or indifferent, it'll leave the body at some point. You will get rid of it. Yep, 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 we got that. Here's the thing you have to understand. As Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, talking to the people, talking to them, the word defile, it has religious connotations, okay? We think of defile, we think of, you know, well, yeah, he's, when he's talking about going to the bathroom, that's defile. We don't want to, no, defile has religious connotations because defile means that you are at odds with God. So there's a spiritual connotation to it. He's not dealing with the physical. He's not dealing with the biological. He's dealing with relationship with God. He says in verse 18, it's the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. What comes out of a person's mouth can hurt and injure and put people at odds with each other. That puts people at odds with God. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive home. You get all concerned about the things that go into your mouth. You need to be much more concerned about what comes out of your mouth. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. These put them at odds with God. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, is there a place for religious ritual and rules and traditions? Yeah. Yeah, there is. 
They're helpful to us. But, but here's, here's one of the things I think that Jesus is trying to drive home. God is not up in heaven with a big whiteboard keeping score. How we treat others is what makes him smile. And I think that we have come to a place where we so oftentimes think the things that defile, the things that put us at odds against God are, are based more on tradition and rule and religion. And that's what the problem with the Pharisees was. Let's just talk about coming to church. Is it important? Yeah. Why? Jesus said it was. Jesus is the one that established the church. But why do we come to church? Because every time we come to church, right, God's in heaven, and then he, there's our name, he, they put a check. You get a box. And when you go this many, you get a ribbon. And you go this many, you get a gold ribbon. You get this many, wow. No, no, no. Why? Why are we doing this? We're doing this because the guy who said... I'm going to die, and then they're going to bury me, and I'm going to rise again, and he pulled it off. He said we should do it. That's why we do it. We are responding to his love. John even says we love him because he first loved us. We're not trying to gain his love. We already have it. He already loves you with an eternal unconditional love. So what are we doing? We're responding to that love. We're responding to that love. When, uh, when I do uh, premarital counseling, one of the first things we cover is the five love languages. Are you familiar with that? Did you know there are five love languages? It's not just a matter of saying, I love you to your spouse. There are five languages of love that we speak and that we hear, okay? And, and it's interesting because this is something that I found in my ministry, not before my marriage. And I'll guarantee you that before I got married, I thought for sure my wife would speak the very same love language. She would want to hear the love language that I needed to hear. <laughs> nope. No, we spoke to, we, we spoke a different, and some of you are like, what's a love language? I'll, I'll give them to you real quickly, all right? This is, this is a throw-in, okay? So for those of you that are married or thinking about it, this is uh, just, uh, you know, some, some extra. You can write this down. It's, uh, I'm going to try to remember them. Um, uh, words of affirmation, okay, so I love you, you're the best, you're the bomb, you know, uh, all that kind of thing. There's words of affirmation, there's, there's uh, quality time, there's acts of service, there's uh, small gifts, okay, little gifts, cards, tokens of appreciation, and then there's physical touch. And those are the five love languages. And what I learned was, as I went on, one of my wife's love languages that she needed to hear was acts of service. 
So I could tell her I loved her till I was blue in the face. And she believed that. But when I would do something for her, that made all the difference. That showed her. So now, of course, the only problem is, especially in this day of cell phones, whenever I do something to show her that I love her, I, of course, enumerate it on a text message just to let her know, oh, by the way, this is what I did around the house today. <laughs> just so she can see it. We, we want to be loved. Listen, there is no greater expression of love, is there, than that one would lay down their life for a friend. And what is the ultimate example of that? It's Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. For you. That's how much he loved you. Uh, yesterday, as I was watching the programs uh, that were on so many networks. I was just kind of changing back and forth for a little while. And of course, they, they again relate the stories of 9-11 and some of the heroic acts of people that happened. And they knew, those firemen knew as people are walking down the stairs, they were walking into the danger. And of course, one of the stories from that is Flight 93. And, and by the time that flight begins to head towards Washington, most of the passengers are now full aware of what has happened. And so they determine we're not going to allow this plane to reach its destination. We're going we're to try to get back control of the plane. And one of the heroes on that plane that, of course, was talked about in the days after that was a guy by the name of Todd Beamer. And Todd is the one who called just before they were going to make their rush and try to take back that cockpit. Todd is the one who was talking to an operator on the other end, and, and he said, would, would you say the Lord's Prayer with me? Would, would you quote with me Psalm 23? And then after he had said goodbyes, he, he left his phone, but it was still on, and the operator heard him say, all right, everybody ready? Let's roll. He left behind a wife by the name of Lisa, two children, and one on the way. And he and Lisa had met at Wheaton College. And this past Friday, Lisa Beamer spoke in chapel at Wheaton College. It's a Christian college where now all three of their children have gone. And I watched her message. And as they commemorated this 20-year anniversary, and every once in a while she would have to stop and kind of compose herself. But this is what she said as she got down near the end of her message. Lisa Beamer, widow of Todd Beamer, hero of Flight 93. This is what she said. The core of our identity, if healthy, is a thorough rooting in God's goodness. That we are loved, that we can be loved, and that we can love without reserve. But it's also rooted, she said, in God's greatness. I was like, she's been listening to my messages. 
God is great. God is good. She says it's also rooted in God's greatness, which forces us to check ourselves in humility. The balance of both is a core identity on the inside, which then allows us to explore our outer layers so that we can serve his purpose well through our unique experiences, circumstances, and relationships. I was like, I got to write that down. I got to write that down because she's talking about exactly where we are at. The core of our identity is not our emotion that sometimes becomes the boss of us. The core of our identity is the goodness of God and the greatness of God. And the goodness says you are loved with an eternal, unconditional love. And because of that, you can love other people. But there is also a greatness of God which forces us to check ourselves. Yes, we are loved, but yeah, I can do better. I can strive for better. And in humility, I look at myself and realize that in God's eyes, while I am loved, I need to continue to keep my focus and attention and priority on Him because I don't want that which is inside of me to become the boss of me. She says that which is on the inside, then we can explore what's on the outside and our unique experiences, circumstances, and relations. What was she saying? Even though I don't understand it all, and even though I still grieve and I still hurt, I live in the goodness and the greatness of God. And she talked about her circumstances. She said, my, I, I so, for so long, my identity was wrapped up in all of these people who were singing my praises, like Oprah and the Today Show, and getting picked up by limousines. And I was all over the place. I, I'm, I'm in the balcony listening to the president as he talks about my husband. Was my identity wrapped up in that? Or was my identity wrapped up after she had started a foundation when people actually started to demean me and say I was trying to take advantage of my husband's death and make money off of it? She said, I could not be swayed by either one. I had to realize my identity came from him who was on the inside of me. My identity came from the greatness and the goodness of God. That's good stuff. And that's what we have to strive for. And then, and then she finished by telling the students at Wheaton this. You are uniquely positioned to build your core on God's goodness and his greatness. And if you do, your impact for Christ and his kingdom will be profound.
And at that point, she could have dropped the mic and walked off the stage. You say, I'm not a student. I'm well past my college. It doesn't matter what season of life you are in. Listen, because of the goodness and the greatness of God, you are uniquely positioned to find your core in him. Not in the emotions that well up within you. Not in the anger, not in the disappointment, not in the discouragement, not in the depression. You are uniquely positioned by God right where you are to find your core and find your identity in his goodness and in his greatness. And when his children do that, the impact we can make for him is profound. We may, may not be able to have the same impact as someone like Elisa Beamers who finds herself on various talk shows and television shows and in chapel appearances, but we are positioned to impact our world for Christ. And what a difference we can make. So let me, let me finish. We got to be done. Here's, here's what I want to tell you as we get going on this, okay? Listen, if you are a Christ follower, can I tell you something? You already have a boss. You already have a boss. And that boss, who is better than the anger, the lust, the greed, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the discouragement, here's his invitation. Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What's he saying? Follow me. Let me be your boss. Let me be your guide. I'll do something for you, catch this now, because I don't need anything from you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Sometimes we gloss over that last part, don't we? You will find rest for your souls, for the deep part of you on the inside. When we find rest down there, what happens? It makes a difference out here. When we allow him to be the boss. Sometimes uh, I feel like in messages I'm all over the map, and to a certain extent, I kind of feel like that is the way with this message. It's just, it's just it, this is the beginning and a foundation, and I'm just kind of all over, grabbing, but I hope that there's something in here that you're able to grab a hold of and kind of use as a foundation. And if nothing else, then grab a hold of this. Jesus wants to be that boss down deep on the inside. 
And here's the thing. He can already be your savior, and he doesn't necessarily have to be the boss. You have a choice in that. And sometimes we give ourselves over to that undercover boss. And we don't guard our heart and we let that anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness and discouragement, circumstances, situations, all of it gets in there. And all of a sudden, our soul is uneasy. Jesus says, let me back in. Let me be your boss. I will give rest to your soul, to that deep part of the inside of you. And that will make the difference on the outside. Bow your heads together with me in prayer. Father, I, I pray that something that we have shared and talked about this morning makes, makes a difference in the heart and lives of your people. We need that, that peace for our soul. The circumstances, the situations, Lord, that we come from, the background, the disappointments, the discouragements, whatever they may be. Lord, sometimes we allow those to kind of take over. And, and they, in a sense, become our, our boss. They are the ones that guide our steps. It's, it's those emotions, Lord, that lead us. It's those emotions that make a difference in our relationships. They make a difference in the way that we live. They make a difference in the choices we make. And Father, we are forgetting your goodness and your greatness, which you want to be the core of our lives. Father, help us to, to readjust, to reprioritize, to put you back in your rightful spot so that we can overcome some of these things that if we're not careful, become the boss of who we are. Thanks for meeting with us here today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.